Welcome to episode 984 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus presented by the Play Index at BaseballReference.com and our Patreon supporters. My name is Ben Lindbergh. I'm a writer for The Ringer, joined as always by Sam Miller of ESPN. Hello. Hello. We are joined also by a frequent guest, although I guess it's been a while, it seems, Russell Carlton of Baseball Prospectus. Hello, Russell. Hey, it's good. We finally have somebody from BP on the BP podcast. <laughs> yeah. Well, we had Jeff on earlier this week, so he counts. Oh. Before we talk uh, with Russell about our topic, can we, can I have, there's some banter that I think Russell's suited for as well. Sure. We got an email yesterday um, in the email show. We talked about Nolan Ryan and trying to compare him to starters today who don't throw as many innings and, and how one of the things that made Nolan Ryan extraordinary was uh, his incredible ability to a throw more innings and more pitches uh, than uh, any man alive. And um, we got an email that is sort of interesting from Matt, who suggests that um, if Nolan Ryan were pitching today, uh, it might not be that his career would have been most similar to Justin Verlander's uh, or any of the other starters I named. But in fact, that Nolan Ryan raised today uh, might have actually ended up in the exact opposite role, throwing fewer pitches than almost anybody else, that he would have been converted to relief early on and I will um, Matt's Matt's case basically boils down to to this Ryan in many ways was fairly similar to Billy Wagner both pitched almost exclusively with their fastball only occasionally mixing things up with a good curve both struck out a ton of guys while having certain glaring weaknesses for Ryan it was walks while for Wagner it was home runs Uh, Ryan was allowed to be a starting pitcher despite his flaws while Wagner's small size meant that the Astros decided to make him a reliever as soon as he hit the majors Ryan wouldn't have that problem, but his lack of control would probably mean that his team would move him to the bullpen within a season or two. It's also worth noting that Ryan claimed to have never thrown anything but a fastball until he was 23, according to the Nyer James Guide to Pitchers. Mariano Rivera was allowed to start with only a great fastball when he was 25, but soon after that he was moved to the bullpen. So I think some of the reason why Nolan Ryan was a unique pitcher is that guys like him rarely get to start for long, let alone... 27 years, if he pitched today, I would think he would end up with an ERA similar to that of Mariano Rivera or Billy Wagner because he didn't need to go for nine innings each time out. Do you think that it is possible that, in fact, Nolan Ryan would have been converted to the bullpen early on and that all the things that made him special would have been sort of uh, nipped in the uh, in the bud stage? Boy, I, thinking about that, I, I have to imagine that you know he would have at least shown the ability to go, you know, I mean, 200 innings over the course of a season or, you know, seven innings a game if they, if they played pitch counts with him. But the fact that he, he would have been able to do that, I think they would have given him a chance to start for as long as he possibly could. I mean, I think that the fact that, you know, there are a lot of guys who are high strikeout, high fastball guys who get moved to the pen because they can't sustain it. But the fact that Ryan, obviously, I mean, he proof of concept is right there. The fact that he pitched so many innings and that he showed that he could do that, I think that teams would have would have given him the chance to to start for for an extended period of time. So the proof of concept, though, didn't show up. Arguably, didn't show up until until quite a bit later. Until really, until he was twenty five and with the Angels. His last year with the Mets, uh, he went ten and fourteen with a ERA plus of eighty six, and he walked seven batters per nine. Uh, and at that point in his career, he had 500 innings as a major leaguer and had walked six per nine. Now, it's hard to know whether that six per nine is also era dependent uh, and is also 
uh, a byproduct of Nolan Ryan's obvious strengths and that people would have seen it as a strength. But it does seem like a lot of like there are good prospect starters who get moved to the bullpen for, you know, less reason than that, like Trevor Rosenthal, for instance and never move back. And particularly if you can sort of point to something in their development that makes you think, oh, well, he would be a better reliever than a starter anyway. There's, there were some red flags in his development, no third pitch, no second pitch. And I think that from 25 on, it's obvious that Nolan Ryan would have been kept in the rotation. It's really in that in-between phase when uh, he's old enough that a team expects him to start contributing but young enough that you haven't actually seen it work. And I think you could argue that through 24, which is a you know fairly advanced age, 500 career innings in the majors already, uh, he hadn't proven that it could work. Maybe he would have followed more the Cliff Lee path, not in the sense of the type of pitcher that he was, but, you know, basically, you know, Cliff Lee back in the, in the early OOs was, was kind of a bad starter. I mean, he wasn't, he, he didn't seem to, he kind of was kind of floundering around and then what they did, he was with the Indians at the time, they just kind of stashed him in AAA and hoped that he would develop, you know, again, keeping him a starter. I'm sure it was tempting because he was left-handed. Oh, maybe we make him a loogie or something like that. But but then eventually something clicked for him. And then he, what was it, 2008, he had his first 20-win season and he became, you know, he, he was, you know, quote-unquote, the best pitcher in baseball for a couple of years in there. And he had that that run. I wonder if he would have had that path where they would have just, they would have kept him a starter, but they would have kept basically hoping and hoping and hoping it, that something would, would kick for him at AAA. In his last uh, minor league stint, it was when he was 20 and he was in AAA. He pitched uh, three games all in relief and threw seven innings and struck out 18, which is pretty oh, good. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> yeah. okay. <laughs> all right. Shall we move on? Yeah. Wait, Ben, okay. you didn't yeah. give your opinion, Ben. I agree with Russell. Okay. I don't think. Yeah. I think if you have Nolan Ryan, who's like legendarily great at endurance, I think he ends up using that skill one way or another. Uh, All right. So we are going to talk about Jeff Passan, who is actually my guest on today's Ringer MLB show. He also wrote an article about the CBA and it covers a lot of the CBA's details and if you want lots of CBA details, go read the article or listen to the interview on the other podcast. But his article is kind of about the risk that there could be a strike next time, which is kind of a, a counterintuitive thesis, I think, just because things seem to go so smoothly this time. And he thinks that because this deal will sort of cement the imbalance between players and owners when it comes to the share of revenue and the hard cap in the international market and all of that, that those tensions will bubble up and boil over and that the next round will be much more contentious. And he talks to many sources within the game who share that view. I, I guess we could just quickly go around and uh, do you guys buy that? I think personally, I I don't, I think. I I think it's so far away that who knows, but I would guess that, I mean, if anything, this year's CBA is just a continuation of a trend toward the owners getting a, a bigger piece of the pie and the players really didn't seem to put up much of a fight this time. And unless something drastic happens between now and five years from now, I mean, as long as everyone's still rich and everyone's still getting richer, I don't know that they'd be any more likely to jeopardize that than they were this time. Do either of you guys disagree? I don't have any reason or expertise to disagree with Jeff or any of his sources. So I would say that I mostly nod and go, interesting, interesting. 
Uh, <laughs> that said, it feels like every year a strike just feels more out of place in the modern world, like in the modern game. Like the, the, we we don't even really like it's. It seems like when there is a strike nowadays, uh, it just feels like n- I don't know. Nobody's there's no sympathetic party. Nobody really thinks it makes much sense. There's obviously a ton of money in the game, and while that doesn't quell the either side's motivations or desires to get their fair share of that money, it becomes sort of harder and harder to convince the public that. Uh, we need to have a work stoppage that, you know, rich, these rich people on both sides shouldn't be able to just work it out. So it feels like it just to me, it feels like strikes are a thing of the 70s and a thing of the 80s and a little bit of thing of the 90s. But now it just feels weird. Like it feels like like somebody predicting that rotary phones are going to come back in the next five years because mm-hmm. like like, well, we haven't. You know, as good as cell phones get, we haven't solved the basic problem that cell phones are garbage reception and that when you're talking to somebody on a cell phone, there's like a second delay and you're talking over each other and really they should resolve that. But we're not going back to the rotary phone. I don't think this me- this metaphor really works, but <laughs> 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 but I don't know. It, it feels it just feels weird to me. It feels like every five years we go, it's going to feel more like a relic of the past and not I guess what I'm, I'm saying is that it doesn't feel like the way that we do business anymore. And it will feel in five years, probably even less like the way that we do business. Yeah. yeah. I mean, why, well, why strike? Yeah. Because, you know, every, everybody's getting rich. Yeah, it has been the way that other sports have done business fairly recently. Uh-huh. But and, baseball's and, different in many ways, but Yeah, I don't I wasn't, you know, I wasn't alive in the 70s. I wasn't aware for the for the 80s strike, but like to me the the like the NBA strike just felt like like farce. Like everybody just agreed that it was just stupid and it didn't really accomplish much it wasn't even that it made people i don't this is just very subjective but uh from a person who didn't hardly follow the sport at all but it didn't feel like people were you know upset that they weren't getting their nba games it felt like people were like what is this this is like like dumb <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> which obviously wasn't a vaccine against it it, it happened uh, and it could happen. And, you know, like you say, it, it happened in hockey, it happened with, uh, you know, NFL refs. It still, though, just feels like not something grownups do or would do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I, I think it's probably easy to maybe get lulled into a false sense of security just because it's been a while. Yeah. And since we've been covering baseball, it hasn't really been a possibility. So maybe we'd be too quick to rule it out. I just, I don't know that this deal, which is doesn't seem to change anything that fundamental, I guess you can argue that having any sort of hard cap at all on anything is a fundamental change, but otherwise it's not a dramatic restructuring. So if this one was passed easily and everyone keeps getting rich, I don't know that I buy that suddenly everyone's going to draw the line next time around, but it's possible Jeff has talked to more people than I have, that's for sure. So, Do you think if it got ugly in, in this league or in any other that you would see a successful – do you think we'll ever see in the next, I don't know, even half century or so, a successful attempt to just break the union entirely? There's so few unions these days. It's not like a part of the average American's life. And, I mean, unions are you know largely confined to the public sector where they are also being broken – so, like, I'm thinking about that book that I talked about, Baseball's Power Shift by Christopher Swanson, and uh, so much of the development of baseball labor rights 
and ultimately the baseball union uh, tracked public sentiment for labor rights and the union. Uh, it was very much a, a part of the larger culture and the, you know, the larger labor economy. Uh, and that was a big part of what both sides were playing to as they tried to develop and then quash efforts for the union. And in as much as that matters, um, baseball's union, pro sports unions are just uh, such an outlier these days, which isn't to say that they, they don't do good. I mean, I, my premise would definitely be that they, they do good. They are fair. They are good. There's, you know, it should be there. It should be strong, but there's 300 million people. Uh, reading, a, you know, picking up a newspaper or, or reading a forwarded email <laughs> uh, <laughs> these days that are also part of the public opinion. And uh, the fact that like the, the baseball union is an outlier and particularly baseball players are themselves outliers in terms of their earning potential. I just wonder whether there, I wonder whether owners in this sport or any other would see this union as in any way vulnerable. Well, I mean, I think that y you've got a case where you know, I mean, this this starts getting bordering on on some political stuff, but the the wider labor movement, you know, was representing people who, uh, against uh, corporations and and uh, and in, in public sector contracts, where you're dealing with some things that are, you know, maybe not life and death issues, but you know, very high high. You know, if we're talking about wages, the difference between thirty and forty thousand dollars in salary. Well, that's you know, that's a big deal. You know, now and and, and you know from from the corporate side, they might say, well, you know, look, this is all about expenses on and on whether or not we can continue to run this business or not. The baseball union, you're dealing with people who are arguing over whether they're going to be paid nine or 10 million next year. And you're, the, uh, the owners there, you know, they'll be okay. The game will go on. So, I mean, I think that the usual dynamics of, of labor and labor relations and, and unionization probably don't really apply in, in baseball. This is kind of a, a thing that you know the players have their their advocacy group and and they should and the owners have theirs and they should and they you know they kind of get together and they they uh, they make up an on you know an agreement on how they're going to police things and, and deal with the the pressing issues of the day but I, I don't think that I don't think that there's any incentive for anybody to really go after the union and because it's it's more kind of more just kind of an advocacy group than right. anything yeah yeah both sides can basically live with. Uh, there, there's no pressing urgency to blow up the system because both sides are are basically happy and arguing over exactly just how happy they're going to get. And for that, I guess that brings us back to 2021. I feel like the same thing would basically apply that it's not worth that the things that they're arguing about are not w the sort of things that are worth losing a year's income or losing a year's revenue over. Mm -hmm. All right. So we are actually going to get to the topic, <laughs> which is there's a passage in this passing story that says, with the same severe penalties in place for exceeding the bonus pool in the amateur draft, and now the hard cap internationally, executives spent Thursday asking, where do I spend my money? This is a fairly common refrain after every new basic agreement, and yet this time it resonated, not just because of the international rules, but ones intended to rein in major league payrolls at the highest level. So Jeff is saying that there's more and more money in the game, fewer and fewer places to spend it, and this is something that people said after the last CBA, and there was probably some merit to that, but there were still places, there were the teams that went way over the international limits, which now they can no longer do. 
and teams that I guess at least some that went over the luxury tax level and that's going to get more costly now. So harder to spend on basically anything, any of the traditional methods of talent acquisition because the penalties are either very severe or just hard capped. So we wanted to talk to Russell and see if he had any ideas for how teams could spend their money to make themselves better because this is sort of a theme of your writing and maybe we've even talked to you about it on the podcast before. You were an early or at least vocal advocate of spending on minor leaguers and and feeding minor leaguers and not feeding them fast food. And it seems like a lot of teams have picked up on that and I'm sure there are teams that could still improve but that does seem to have become an, an emphasis for a lot of teams over the last few years. So is there anything out there that you see? What would you recommend to the team executive who has everything and doesn't have a place to put it? He has a whole bunch of money burning a hole in his pocket and has nowhere to spend it. What a, mm-hmm. what a horrible thing. <laughs> I mean, you could give it to charity. I, um, <laughs> tis, tis the season to be giving. Remember the neediest. Well, you know, I, well, I mean, you know, remember, and, and some of that goes into the, the minor league stuff that I've written about. And, you know, I, I think that if you think about, okay, bonuses are capped, salaries are not capped, but, you know, there's the luxury tax and that's still, that's still in place. And that's serving as something of a cap unofficially. And, and so now you get into, okay, well, what, what do teams spend money on that isn't salaries or bonuses? And, you know, some of those creature comfort things uh, start happening. And I, I wonder if we start kind of getting into teams getting in an arms race over some of those creature comforts. You know, we've, for some reason, I, over the past couple of years, I keep hearing stories about, oh, you know, such and such team just redid their locker room or they redid their their training facility at their their spring training home, um, some of those uh, some of those types of things. Because you know, if you can't offer somebody more money, well, you can maybe offer them more perks. Maybe you do more stuff around. I could say the most you know self serving thing, and well, maybe you maybe you hire more people from BP to uh, to be analysts. But uh, yeah, but where would you spend the money though? Well. <laughs> <laughs> On data feeds for the uh, uh, for the the analyst to uh, uh, to process, but I mean, yeah. When you when I read this uh, initially, I'm like, boy, where would you spend that money? I I am wondering if we're going to start seeing because I remember a few years ago when the NHL had the new collective bargaining agreement. One of the things they had as as part of their salary cap uh, was that the salary cap hit that you took on a a contract was equal to the average annual value of the contract. And I forget what team it was and who it was that they, they signed because I don't really follow hockey. But I remember reading the story where there was the team that decided, you know what, we're going to sign this guy who we really want. We're going to sign him to a contract that I think they wanted him for like seven years or whatever it was. And they figured that that would be his last contract. He would retire after that. And then after that moment, after that seven or eight year period that they wanted him for, they put a rider on the back of his contract where they signed him, quote unquote, signed him for 10 more years at $100,000 a year, which adds, you know, another million to the contract, but it adds 10 years to the denominator for average annual value. And I wonder if we'll start seeing some creative financing games uh, along those lines. I mean, obviously, MLB doesn't have a, a salary cap, but you can see some of those games that when people start sitting down 
and playing around with, okay, where's the loophole? And, you know, I wonder if in, you know, next year at this time, you know, we're all talking about, you know, this cool loophole that's named after some player that we haven't even imagined, but currently somebody is pouring over the details of this uh, in their, uh, in some team front office, trying to find that point and saying, hey, you know, if we did this, we could kind of skirt around and spend more money on players. So I, I kind of wonder if, you know, the, what we've really done is that we've just kind of made it an arms race for who has the best people who read all the fine details and can come up with ways to cheat, legally cheat, but cheat. Right. Yeah, there's always something that some sort of unintended consequence. So I don't know what it will be, but yeah, you'd think that teams would come up with something. So so yeah, okay, so you can get snazzier facilities, which would maybe have the dual benefit of actually helping prepare your players better, but also helping incentivize them to come play for your team. And yeah, like one of, well, I guess what the problem is that the CBA kind of hard coded some of those things. Like one of the CBA's provisions is that every team has to have a chef in the clubhouse, right? I think I read that in one of Passon's tweets or like two seats per player on the spring training bus, like little perks like that are now in the CBA. So maybe there are even fewer places where you can set yourself apart from other teams. And then you could keep hiring staff. You could just have more coaches, more analysts, more scouts. I guess that's something that we'll see. That's something we have seen, obviously. Teams have way more scouts and front office people, analysts, than they used to. So that can continue. I don't know whether that gets to a point where it's too many people and it's inefficient well, in some way. It's. I mean, it's interesting that you say more scouts, more coaches, because I think we tend to think of it that way. That's the opportunity. But I meant to ask Jeff this when we talked about the Yankees prospects. I, I meant to ask him if he had any idea whether the Yankees, being a richer team, also pay their coaches more uh, and would therefore be able to recruit the better ones. And I, I meant to ask him. I don't know if he would have known it. But my sense, my understanding has been that Basically, that is not the case for teams that it's not like there is a big arms race, you know, for the best roving catching instructors that maybe the best roving, maybe that's because the best roving catching instructor get ends up being some team's third base coach the next year or gets promoted within the game. But when I wrote about the Angels farm system and how they were trying to uh, rebuild it and invest more in it, they had increased their player development budget from $9 million to $12 million. A lot of that was spent on revamping, improving, building their Dominican facilities. But there were also things like, and these are what I listed, hot breakfasts at spring training, a supplements budget, cell phones for coaches, and travel budgets for coaches' families. And it's interesting that it would be cell phones for coaches, travel budgets for coaches' families. Those are a form of compensation. They are a form of quality of life and, and so on. But but if you want good coaches, well, why not just pay them an extra $60,000 a year, more than the Royals would be paying or more than any other team would be paying? And I find that it seems like when we talk about the personnel of a team, we get so narrow-mindedly focused on the 25 people who are playing. We, we treat them as the talent. They are the talent. They've always been the talent. And the manager is the talent. The players are the talent. Increasingly, the general manager is the talent. It, you know, it really isn't an aircraft carrier uh, in an organization. There's hundreds of people who are all, in essence, the talent. They are all contributing to the exact same thing. They all have a role with the exact same goal. Uh, and yet we only really pay attention to how much more the Yankees or the Red Sox are able to pay for 
a setup man instead of how much more they are able to pay for, you know, the roving catching instructor or pitching instructor. And so I wonder why we never hear about that. And one hypothesis I I might have is that uh, these teams are essentially, I don't, I'm, I'm going to use the loaded word. I don't mean it in a loaded sense, but in a sense, they're sort of colluding. I shouldn't even say it in the sort of, <laughs> but like it, the Yankees, you know, presumably maybe these teams know that like the expenses are all pretty minimal that, you know, every team could afford to spend an extra $250,000 on their coaching staff. And if a team like the Yankees or if a team like the Pirates decided that that's the best way to spend their $250,000, that would be great for like a year. But then everybody else would just do it too, because the money is actually fairly uh, inconsequential in the larger budget. And that there's a sort of a unspoken, maybe unacknowledged, maybe even subconscious cooperation among teams to not allow this sort of salary arms race anywhere but the 25 men on the field. Yeah, I mean, I wonder if they're one of the things that we might see is kind of a, a flattening of the salary structure along the kind of the, you know, the 25 man support staff, if you will, which would, you know, encompass everybody in the front office and the, you know, the roving catching instructor, the coaches, the minor league assistants and all those all those sorts of people. Because, if, I mean, if you think about it now, that roving catching instructor and, and you mentioned him getting promoted to third base coach the next year. Well, you know he might be an amazing catching instructor, but he might be thinking, you know, look, I mean, I, I want to make a little bit more money. I, you know, I have a family to support. I've got whatever. And so, you know, maybe I'm going to uh, agitate politically within the system and, and try to uh, work my way up and work my way up to a, a position where I make a little bit more money, but then my amazing talents as a catching instructor really aren't being fully realized. But, you know, if you flatten out that that structure a little bit and, you know, kind of everybody's making more similar amounts of money, then he doesn't have to agitate. He's kind of like, oh, you know, I can, I mean, I could go be the third base coach, but why? I'm, I'm good at being the catching instructor and it's not any more money. So, so I wonder if, you know, teams would, would benefit from something along those lines where, they weren't setting up or they were setting up a system where people were incentivized to stay in places where their talents could best play up rather than having them, you know, itching to become more higher compensated positions where, you know, their talents could be useful, but they, you know, their specialized talent, something that they're really good at, they, that that's not what they were doing. So, I mean, I wonder if, if that's something that, that we could, we could see. And again, you know, that money isn't consequential, but you know, again, where else are you going to spend it? Yeah. I think that's a, I think that's a really good point. And if you think about, you know, the Peter principle in application, if you're a team that has a surplus of money, but maybe not uh, but, you know, a, a surfeit of uh, opportunities to win a World Series, you would rather the Peter Principle uh, be applied in a way that your roving catching instructor would be paid 5000 more than he's actually worth. Like he's risen to a pay grade that he is not quite maybe worth rather than a position that he's not quite qualified for mm-hmm. where he could do damage. And, of course, you can see executive compensation continue to rise. I don't know if it'll be the full Louis Paulus inflation that uh, he wrote about that executives would be worth, but Theo Epstein's break-in records, and obviously he has demonstrated that it matters who your GM or president is. So if you have tons of money to spend, then maybe an owner applies some of it there to bring in the most prestigious executive and then 
the next team has to spend more on the next candidate and then that just sort of spirals a bit but again probably not likely to be an enormous difference i don't see a place where you can spend all of the money i mean we're talking about many dozens of millions of dollars that teams are now not going to spend going over international or or accruing penalties and luxury tax or whatever it is so i don't know if there's like a one-to-one place you could pour that money into i wonder if we'll see some stadium renovations then you know some uh some you know some things where if you're yeah, gonna, the public if you can't will put, pay for that. Well, I mean, but, well, I mean, if they won't pay for a new stadium, but you might see, you know, a, a stadium or you know, an owner say, "Oh, okay, well, then let's add some some new feature. Let's build a Ferris wheel in center field or something like that, so that you know, mid game people can ride on it and maybe catch the pop fly that that hits hit out there." And but you know, I mean, it's it. You start getting into well, you know, what else? What uh, yeah, what else are you gonna spend it on? And, and if you can't put a better product on the field, you know, these, these people are still in the business of entertaining us. This is still an entertainment product. So, you know, we have people, we have a, a fan base in baseball that goes to the game and does the wave during two outs in the eighth inning in a one-run game. And, you know, people are going, I'm, I'm standing up and putting my hands up. And so, you know, there's there's people are just kind of going there to be part of something and be entertained and maybe because this is still an entertainment business, maybe they, they kind of spend more on the entertainment aspect of, of the game. Yeah, or you, I mean, it might be worth, like, I don't know, could you imagine that rather than every team spending more money against each other, that we see more uh, cooperative efforts where the league is spending money to preserve its market share? Like, could you imagine that maybe instead of Every team deciding to spend eighty thousand more on on sandwiches for minor league clubhouses, they all spend you know two hundred million dollars collectively to subsidize you know professional baseball league in China or something like that. That could be fun, <laughs> and although although I could imagine that then then in the next if that I mean if that's really what happens, I could imagine then that the players would come back in that next CBA and maybe this is is Jeff's point. Mm. Uh, they're they're saying you know look. We basically, you know, we agreed to these caps and, and this sort of stuff. Basically, you've taken that money and you're spending it on a league in China where there's no baseball culture like there is over here. And, you know, we could be, we would be happy to take some of that money and put it in our pockets. And so then you, and then, then you get into the CBA negotiations and, and then it just becomes the same process again of why are you spending it on that? And is that, you know, in the long term better for our bottom line and, and and if it's not, well, when we just want the money right now and, you know, forget your your baseball league in China or whatever it is going to be. Do you guys think that there's any room for baseball to grow through marketing? Like right now, it's like, what, a nine billion dollar industry, nine billion in revenue a year, something like that. If they just I mean, just I'll give you an outlandish hypothetical, but if they decided that they were going to spend an extra three billion dollars a year in marketing to try to build this sport. Would they sell one more ticket than they do? Would they would they improve revenue at all? Is is the amount of revenue at all limited by by the amount of marketing they're currently doing, or is it conceivable that that they could uh, you know have some sort of a moonshot uh, initiative in the game that would actually grow the game uh, and make it bigger next year, bigger in ten years, bigger in a hundred years than it is? Well, the moonshot had had a target; it had the moon. And, you know, I mean, it's, it, and, and it's up there and everybody can see it. And nobody's gotten to it yet. And so, I mean, that would be, I, I think. 
other countries could well, be the moon for, I for baseball. But, I mean, uh, yeah, you're talking about geography and, and, you know, I mean, do we want to start, do we want, you know, a baseball team in London? Do we want, uh, you know, but I mean, how does that even work in terms of playing the games? Boy, I mean, that would be, I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I'm stammering because this is an, one of those impossible questions to answer because I'd want to say that, you know, the ROI that you would probably get on a campaign that big probably isn't worth it. But at the same time, I'm sure somebody could come up with, you know, a proposal that would be much smaller, that would have a positive ROI that would be, you know, appropriate, that wouldn't that wouldn't be a moonshot, but it would be something. So in the strict sense, yeah, I mean, I suppose there's probably some marketing idea or ideas out there that could, could grow baseball. But I don't think that there's that big, let's spend $3 billion and you know, it'll, the increase in market size will, will grow our revenues $10 billion. I, you know, sitting in my car here, I, I can't see that where it is, but then again, I'm just looking at a fence. So. All right. Have we exhausted our creativity? I'm pretty much created out. I will never be able to do anything creative again. <laughs> it's definitely getting harder to come up with answers to this question. So we're doing our best. I think right. I think they should invest in even slower motion cameras. <laughs> <laughs> like I love the Coors Light freeze cam. It's great, but I mean what I'm proposing is twice as many frames per second. <laughs> okay, sure. How much is that going to run you? 3 billion dollars. One one Josh Hamilton. Right. <laughs> Probably. All right. So we will end there. We'll keep brainstorming. Feel free to send us your brilliant ideas and we'll talk about them next week. You can find Russell writing every week at Baseball Prospectus. You can find him on Twitter recommending all the good baseball articles at Pizza Cutter 4. Russell, always a pleasure. Ah, oh, thanks, guys. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectively wild. Today is five supporters, Hubert Sue, David Lizerbrom, Asa Beal, Connor Farley, and Damian Masterson. Thank you. And by the way, even if we are no longer employed by Baseball Prospectus and obligated to plug it, we still have a lot of affection for the site. And if you are not yet a Baseball Prospectus subscriber and you're interested in becoming one, BP is running an offer right now called BP360. It's a $100 package that comes with a premium subscription and a copy of the annual and a t-shirt and early access to Pakotas and a couple other perks. I think it's running through Sunday. So if you go to baseballperspectus.com now, you'll see a link to it right at the top of the homepage. You can buy our book, The Only Rule Is It Has to Work, Our Wild Experiment Building a New Kind of Baseball Team. Check it out at theonlyruleisithastowork.com. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild. And you can rate and review this podcast and my other podcast, The Ringer MLB Show on iTunes. As I mentioned, there is a new episode of that show up as well. You can contact me and Sam via email at podcast at baseballperspectives.com or by messaging us through Patreon. Have a wonderful weekend. We will be back next week. <laughs>